0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brew Church podcast. My name is Fabian. I am your host, and I'm glad that you are listening. If you would, please hit the plus button on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Spotify as a way to help more people find this audio content. This audio is recordings from our Sunday gatherings. And if you would like to support what happens here on this podcast or in the Brew Church community in general, there's a giving button in the description of this. Uh, We hope that this is helpful for you and that you gain some good tools to lead to a life of abundance. Enjoy. Um, so our conversation tonight uh, was kind of was brought on by the was really inspired by the conversation we started last week, um, and the question rate was raised. So if we're not concerned about the afterlife, then then what's what's the point of Jesus, right? So he came, um, he did some stuff. Like like what what do we do with all that if we're not concerned about like trying to be saved? From, from heaven or hell. Um, and I mean, in the last few weeks, we've talked and deconstructed the ideas about evangelism. Okay, maybe that's problematic. Uh, heaven and hell, Jesus, uh, what, what's, what's next? Um, and if you grew up in the Christian faith, like I did, then um, when you start asking these questions, I know when I started asking these questions, it, w- it felt a lot like the rug was being pulled out from underneath me. Um, and I was like looking into this black hole and it was really scary and it it, it sucked a lot um, Like this last week um, I work in a school and I, I work with fourth and fifth graders and we were talking about the life cycle of a star and uh, We were explaining like oh, yeah life cycle like stars. They live for a few billion years They're born and they grow and then after a certain point point. They, depending on how big they are, they will either go supernova and explode and create a black hole or they'll just collapse in on themselves and create a brown dwarf. And like every star is going to do that. Like our sun's going to probably turn to a brown dwarf someday. And the kids are like, what? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, like, you know, in a few billion years, it's just going to, you know, it's going to run out of uh, hydrogen to fuse and it's going to, you know, um, blow up. And, but don't worry, before that, it's going to turn to a red giant and will consume most of the inner planets in our solar system <laughs> and burn away most of the larger gas giants in the outer solar system. I think it's just like, <sighs> fuck. <sighs> <sighs> like, this is a problem. <sighs> um, just, I, I, I watch the existential dread, just like, like, like these kids live pure and innocent lives. And I just watch like. Oh god, like we have to deal with our own mortality. And and that's what it feels like, right? When you start asking these big questions about faith, right? So you got handed this stuff that you, of these ideas that you thought were going to help you and then you start asking questions, start pulling on these threads and it feels like it feels like that 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 sense of oh, like I don't know where I'm going to land. I'm falling and I don't know where the bottom is. And that's really scary. And so the what we're going to talk about tonight is okay so if jesus isn't here to save us from hell what what might be the point and this is a conversation that theologians have been having for a very long time um there has been debate about this for you know the past two thousand years jesus came he died was resurrected however you want to uh, interpret all those words And people have been talking about it for a very long time. What does that mean? And I am going to offer one or a very small slice of one of these answers. And hopefully, y'all find it interesting, maybe compelling. I find it compelling and interesting, or at the very least, we can have some really good table conversation about it. Um, So let's jump into it. Here we go. All right. So, we're going to be starting with Mark 1 one Um, and so mark is the first gospel to be written and written like 60-ish a uh uh, 60-ish ce or ad whichever you want to go with Um, so probably about 30-ish years after jesus did his thing and mark opens his gospel like this he says in the beginning uh, excuse me the beginning of the good news of jesus christ the son of god okay so we're starting off spicy already however Maybe we don't know quite know it's just how spicy this is, okay? Um, in order to really kind of see, like, what we're all getting to, we need to kind of delve into some of the context of what's going on here. Um, d- did anyone, for those of you who didn't sleep through Junior English, um, does anyone read uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, the play? Yes? Awesome. Okay, so The Crucible, for those of you who did sleep through Junior English, which was me, um, well, sometimes, um, was a story about the Salem witch trials, and so we have this community, and, like, all of a sudden, people are starting accusing other folks of being witches, and this whole, like, town descends into, like, everyone just accusing everyone of being witches and, like, counter accusations and back and forth. Um, it ends with, like, uh, one of my favorite quotes, like, one of my favorite last words, and that's with Giles Corey, um, Like, as he's being pressed to death, which is a way of press, like, killing someone, they basically just, like, put rocks on you until you were dead, Um, which seems like a really uh, terrible way to go. Um, As he's being pressed to death, his last words, according to the play, were more weight, which just is really hardcore. Like, that's just kind of badass. Like, I always thought it would be really fun to have, like, a T-shirt with, like, a pilgrim looking like Giles Corey, but he's, like, super jacked and the quote would be like more weight and like it would sell to like the like that venn diagram the people who stayed awake in english class and meatheads There, like there's only five of us um but we'd all buy one so the so that's that's the crucible right this is sort of like this, this these witch trials this this witch hunt and uh, the Crucible wasn't written in a vacuum. This didn't just like appear out of nowhere, out of Arthur Miller's mind. Um, Arthur Miller uh, was brought before the House of Un-American Activities Committee in the 50s. Um, he was a victim of McCarthyism, and uh, he was accused of being communist. And he went, but he went under the condition that he wasn't going to name names, um, because he was a snitch. And so he goes, and sure enough, they started asking him to name names. They lied. And he refused to name names and they charged him um, with contempt of Congress. Uh, He wasn't able to get a passport and he got blacklisted and a bunch of other negative stuff happened. And this happened to a whole bunch of creative folks in like Hollywood and like Playwright World and and a bunch of other things. Um, And so knowing that story, I think kind of gives some teeth to the crucible, right? So we have like, here is a real life witch hunt McCarthy looking for, you know, communists. And here we have, like, basically Arthur Miller taking these ideas and writing about them in The Crucible and kind of writing about this experience, right? So, like, The Crucible has context, right? Once we understand that context, like, oh, like, this play has some teeth to it. This play is trying to say something to, like, the current era, the 1950s, that Arthur Miller was living through. So let's add some context to Mark, all right? So in BCE, this was described in Perine, which I um, don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, it's in modern-day Western Turkey, um, and it goes like this. This is an inscription that was found, and it says this. So, since Providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things, and since he, Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done, and since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. Okay, so that was the world's longest run-on sentence. But you see this inscription is writing about Caesar Augustus, and it's using a lot of language that if you grew up like I did in Christianity, like you would hear like, okay, at least they're calling him a savior. He's this one who's going to bring righteousness to the world. He's one coming to bring order. He's coming to bring goodness. like like the whole world owes something to Caesar Augustus. And if you grew up like me in Christi- like Christianity, when I first like read this, I was like, this feels weird hearing language that is usually being applied to Jesus, being applied to Augustus. But the reality is it's backwards. The gospel writers were using Augustus's language and putting it on Caesar. So that's the context, right? So this is where we're coming from. Um, so So if we jump back to Mark, we talked about the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of that. Is like very very coded political language. Good near good news here. Like that word, good news, um, is is Greek. It's it's a euangelion, um, or which we kind of like as we anglicized it, turned into like evangelion, which we then turned into like evangelical or evangelized, Kind of like same root word. Um, this was a term for Roman political propaganda, and so the way this would work is like let's say the empire won a battle. Um, Or expanded its territory. They would publish this UN Galead and and disperse it throughout the Empire and they would say Here's the good news about Caesar. We've won this battle. We've killed this many enemy soldiers. We're bringing back this many uh, Slaves we've added this much new territory to the Empire Um, Look how much peace and prosperity we're bringing to you Uh, uh, Aren't you glad we're in charge? Uh, Rome liked to call this Pax Romana the peace of Rome, and that was this idea of like we we 're the ones who bring you peace right and peace comes peace comes through Caesar Augustus and his empire making um, Shemis and i we 've been watching uh, Narcos lately <laughs> um, and it 's pretty good like i don 't know I think I, I think uh, like I, I fully identify as a straight man, but like Pedro Pascal, I mean you know <laughs> um, And, 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 I mean, hey, (laughs) there we go. Um, So, in the first episode, when you first meet Pablo Escobar, for the first time, he's just a smuggler. He hasn't gotten to, like, the narcotics trade yet, right? He's just smuggling, like, electronics and consumer goods and things like that around Colombia. And he's leading this, like, caravan of trucks loaded with VCRs and TVs. And he's leading this caravan through. And he comes to a, uh, a checkpoint, and there is like soldiers there, and they make him pull over. And he's, they have him open up his trucks, and they see all this contraband, and they're going to arrest him. And then he starts like, he makes them this offer. He starts like pulling out VCRs and TVs and like satellite phones, and starts giving them to these soldiers uh, working the checkpoint. And he's like, "Hey, your mother-in-law would love this," and he names the mother-in-law by name. And then he's like, "Oh, give this to your daughter." Um, and he's like, oh, your wife would love this thing. Actually, you should take this. And he starts giving them all this stuff. And he makes an offer. And he says, plata o plomo, silver or lead. And he's like, y- he's an offer. He's like, here, you can get in line. You can make some good money. I can give you some free stuff. You can just, like, take this bribe and keep going. Or we'll kill you and your entire family. Um, and, and so this is is the equivalent of like the Pax Romana. The La Paz de Escobar is like the same offer as like the Pax Romana. So the Romans would roll up to your town or your country and they would say, hey listen, do you wanna be a part of the empire? If you say yes, like you'll have to start paying a tribute um, and we get to, you know, you're part of the empire, welcome. Um, if not, we're gonna kill a whole bunch of you, put one of our leaders in charge, and then you'll have to pay a tribute anyway. And you get to choose, what 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 do you want? Silver or lead, and or steel in that case would have been a sword. They didn't have guns, um, and so like that was Pax Romana. And so the question is: Is this really peace? Is this really like a peace we want? Like a peace where, um, or is this like a peace that com- feels a lot more like uh, extortion? That feels a lot more like oppression. Um, so this is this is what happened to Palestine. That Jesus. And then a few years later, Mark lived in. Um, The Romans had taken over. They had placed a loyal leader in charge. King Herod, he was from a wealthy family. He was in charge, especially of Galilee. Um, And they levied a tribute against the people. And so, like, all this money had to go back to Rome. However, King Herod and his people, they weren't going to pay it. So they then, in turn, taxed all the peasantry. Peasants had to pay that, of course, King Herod and his folks—they took a little bit off the top, sent the rest on. So King Herod and his people—they made a whole bunch of money. They became very wealthy. They benefited from this system. Um, the peasantry, of course, didn't, uh, because they had—they were shouldering basically the entire burden and then some of this tribute. In addition to that political thing happening, there was like a religious establishment. By this time, the second temple was built and was fully running in Jerusalem. And um, there's this whole class of scribes and priests who were there and they also had their own taxes and tithes that you had to pay if you wanted to worship. And so if you were the peasant class, like as most of the people were, so as you read through the gospels, you hear about these big masses of people coming out to Jesus. Um, That's why those feedings are so important because you may not have had food, right? That was why that was such a big deal um, because you were poor. And so what happened is if you couldn't afford to pay your taxes or your tithes that were put on you, um, you would have to sell your land. And then, of course, now you're even closer to financial ruin. And now you're a day laborer or a tenant farmer, and you don't have a whole lot of options left. Um, So that's kind of like a brief rundown, and there's a lot more we can get into. um, But that's kind of a brief rundown of the world that Jesus found himself in. We have these two institutions that have a very vested interest in keeping the status quo up and running. And a whole class of people whose only economic reality is working so that they can keep these two institutions wealthy and powerful. Um, So here's Jesus. And one way of looking at the text, especially what we find in Mark, is that Jesus then goes on and he's constantly engaging in public symbolics acts that seek to undermine these institutions. Uh, Ched Myers, um, he's uh, a writer that I've borrowed a lot from in this, for this talk, um, he's written a lot about this stuff. He describes uh, Jesus' work, especially in Mark, as a series of campaigns of nonviolent direct actions. Um, he's constantly healing casting out evil spirits and the whole time he's pointing his finger at religious and political establishment saying this is your fault like this blood this is all on your hands like you you all are a part of this um in mark chapter 3 we find the story that kind of i think really helps illustrate this uh here we go uh this is in the beginning of mark verse 1 again he entered the synagogue. And a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath, Uh, they being like priests and and scribes and such. Um, They watched to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. And then he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. So here we are. We have a man who, because of his withered hand, probably would not have been able to fully participate with his religious community, let alone he may not be able to work um, with you know, because because a lot of labor would have been you know physical labor, and if you don't have the use of both your hands, um, the odds of you getting hired as a day of labor would probably gonna be pretty slim. Um, Jesus like looks at these religious leaders and throws down the gauntlet. So the Sabbath was, a mentally meant, was initially meant to be a blessing for humanity. If your community had all been slaves, like the Israelites claimed to be, they're all slaves in Egypt. Um, every day was work, and not just work, but work for which you received no recompense. Um, you weren't a human being. You were just expendable labor. And then you escape. You get your freedom. And, and as God who liberated you commands you, take one day and make that your Sabbath. Do no work on that day. That day is for you. Uh, that day is where you remember that you are a human being. Rest have to spend time with your kids, eat, drink, like enjoy your life because you aren't just like expendable labor. You are a human being and you have dignity and you have value. Take one day to remember that. And so we, here we have the Sabbath and the question is, is Jesus going to save this man? Is Jesus going to do work to heal this man on the Sabbath? And so here's Jesus in the synagogue, and this man who's been denied his humanity and dignity because of his hand, and Jesus heals him. And this was technically work, and this was a symbolic act that showed how far these religious leaders has come. The day was meant to be a day where a person's humanity was honored, and it was being used as a trap. And Jesus steps into that trap, restores his humanity and dignity, and then looks at these religious leaders, and then like, he's like, do something about it. Like, what are you going to do about it? Like, these people were, like, trying to trap him, and he's like, do something. And, like, this is how spicy this is, right? So, like, when we talk about, like, Jesus and as uh, this political actor, like, this is what he's up to. Challenging these things, making these political statements. Um I think it, it's really easy for us to kind of, like, ex- look at Jesus and see, like, oh, like, here's his character who, like, stood above the fray and, like, kind of, like, was was not connected with the struggles of humans. Um, I think it's it's similar to how we today look at Martin Luther King, and we've kind of lionized him. We've imagined him as, like, oh, like, he just wanted peace and everyone to get along. And we're, like, no, like, this man, like, marched in streets. Like, this man was, like, crossed, th- like, this is saying, like, marched across bridges in Selma. He, he, th- like he was in it, right? He'd been to prison, right? He wasn't just some human being who like stood above it all and like wasn't connected to it. No, like he had skin in the game and like he was there, he was in it. And, it, and it's and like in our process of like kind of like lionizing these human beings, we take their teeth away and we take just how radical and, and transformative and powerful what they said and did in the world really was. Um, let's look at another story. Uh, this one comes from a few pages later, Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 28. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he being Jesus, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, for you have truly said he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all your heart, with all your standing, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any question. This was shortly before Jesus went to Jerusalem and was killed. Um, so, the scribe, so scribe was a part of the religious institution at the time, and he comes to Jesus and asks a question. The text has this happening right after another conversation between Jesus and other scribes, and that one was more of a trap. And so, it seems like this one scribe like heard this, and like this is a genuine question, like this real. This is a real question, not like of these like traps, so it wasn't meant to be like, try to be hypocritical. It was like a real question from like the heart of this scribe. And that seems like what Mark was, jo- um, Mark was trying to get at. He was genuine. So let's look at j- Jesus' answer. So he starts with the Shema, the whole part, like the lo- hero Israel, the Lord is one. Um, and then he says, we're to love God. And then he says, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, th- and this idea of loving our neighbor as ourselves wouldn't have been a new idea for the scribe. This is actually a a verse that comes to us out of Leviticus um, uh, 19.18. And you you see the same command there. And Leviticus, it comes at the end of a teaching that God tells Moses to give to the people. And it comes after this long list of commands where God's like, do not steal from or lie to one another. Do not defraud your neighbor and keep a laborer's wages. Do not revile the deaf or place a stumbling block before the blind. Basically just like honor those people who have deaf disabilities um be just in your judgments then finally do not harbor hate for your neighbor but love your neighbor as yourself for jesus and the scribe their tradition illustrate that loving your neighbor meant that you honored them you cared for them as a member of community of your community loving your neighbor was synonymous with creating a just and life affirming society so so imagine you're the, the scribe you're wealthy you benefit from the system that oppresses all those around you and you ask Jesus what's the point of it all like what's 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 real what's life really about and uh, he takes the shema he takes this love for the divine and he takes this love for your neighbor and he, del- and he like just kind of bundles them all together and he says here it's this this is the point of life and as a scribe you're like oh yeah that's it right on i got gotcha. you and jesus like Man, you are so close. And, and here's why I think Jesus said that, right? Because um, he's still a scribe. He's still a part of this oppressive system that, that, that is actively involved in, in coming between people and God. That's actively involved in oppressing the people around them. And he's like, man, you are so close. You're just, you just don't get it. And this is, this is where I think our context comes in. Uh, this is where I think, like, this is what it means to be alive in, in 2023. Um, this last week, a pair of bills were passed in the state of Missouri legislature uh, targeting our trans friends. The first bans gender affirming care for minors, and the second bans trans women from participating in women's sports. And these are just a tiny fraction of the anti trans bills that are currently flying through state legislatures across the country. And we have to ask ourselves, where would Jesus be at this time? See, Jesus tra- talks um, about turning the other cheek, uh, like if someone hits you, um, you you turn your head so they they can strike the other cheek as well. And I know we, we Fabian has talked about this before, um, and it, but but this is a. a a, pol- a brazen political act. This isn't like just some nice platitude like, oh, Jeff from accounting said something mean to me. I'm just going to turn the other cheek. It's, it, this, is, this isn't that at all. No, this is, this is way, way heavier than that. The type of strike that Jesus is describing would have been a backhand, right? This is, a str- this is something you say for a slave. Like a backhand is dehumanizing. A backhand says you are beneath me, you are below me, and I'm going to put you in your place. And so by turning the other cheek, you are now forcing this person to see you as an equal because you don't punch someone beneath you, you punch an equal. Turning the other cheek was a way of demanding that they see your dignity, that they have to look you in their eyes if they're going to hit you again. And they're going to see that, oh, yeah, you're a person. It is you looking them in the face and say, no, like, you may not like me, but like, you will respect me, and I, I demand my dignity right here and now in this moment. Um, so when Jesus said, um, to "Turn your to their cheek," he was saying, "Turn to your face." When they hit you again, they have to strike you with your fist. Um, and 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 that's what that's 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 what that's about. Um, but this teaching, this turning their cheek teaching, the turning their cheek teaching. I don't know why it was so hard to say. Um, this this teaching that's, this isn't for us, right? This 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 isn't for us. Jesus, when he gave that sermon, was speaking to those same oppressed peasants who live in occupied territory, feeling the boot of empire on their necks. He was giving them means to protest their oppression and restore their dignity in the face of institutions that meant to rob them of that dignity in order to maintain their power. And we, and I'm primarily meaning me here, and people like me who have the privileges that I have to move and be and live in society. Like, we don't live in that context. I'm not a part of an oppressed peasantry at the outskirts of empire. And author Peter Rollins retells the story this way. When Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, he turned to us, standing in the west. He was silent for a time. He turned to us, and he said, but this message isn't for you. These people will be your message. The people you've exploited and oppressed. The ones who clean our toilets, who are harassed by police, who've been forced into closets, the ones who've had to deny who they are. They are my message to you. Every time you strike them across the cheek, they will look you in the eye and demand their dignity. Every time you force them to carry your things one mile, they will carry it too for you. You may wish to eradicate them, but they will not go. You cannot erase their humanity. And I believe that this is what Jesus' message is today and who I believe Jesus would be standing with. So we have that question, where would Jesus be today? Like, what is Jesus up to in the world? Um, What's the point of Jesus if we're not trying to be saved from some sort of afterlife? And I, I think the point is this is that once we let go of the idea that Jesus is interested in some sort of existence in the hereafter, and we look at what Jesus was actually doing in his context, giving humanity and dignity to those that were denied that by the state and religion, then we can easily see that what Jesus would be doing today. He'd be standing in front of a drag queen storing hour, putting his body on the line between people who would come and try to rob those of their dignity. He would be marching with picketers. He'd be getting tear-gassed and protesting police brutality. Any system that seeks to dehumanize and oppress would be on the chopping block, especially those that do so in the name of religion. And so we ask ourselves, like, what's the point of Jesus? I think it's this even if you take away all that religious language and you take away all like this getting saved and the here and after, I think, I think this is still compelling and this is still powerful and this still speaks to us. This is, I think, like if we ask ourselves, where's Jesus today? I think he's out there. And if we want to go f- see Jesus and if we want to go be like Jesus, then that's also where we ought, ought to be. Thank you for listening to this episode. Peace and blessings, everyone.